You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. I must admit, this is, uh, this is the part of the morning that I thought would be the most difficult, getting the extroverts to stop talking. You guys can find your seats. We're going to get started. Good morning, Redemption. Um, It's great to see you guys this morning. My name is Graham. If you don't know me, and I am not the usual preacher here at Redemption Church, so if this goes really badly for you this morning, you should come back next week. It won't be me. I promise. (laughs) Pastor Trevor is, uh, he's away today. He's in Red Deer, and he'll be away next week as well, and he'll come back uh, two weeks from now. Um, Here at Redemption Church, we've been studying the book of Genesis for the better part of this year, Uh, and through the summer we decided to take a bit of a break from that, and we're in our Gospel Impact series uh, looking at the fruit of the Spirit in the church, and that would be the fruit of the Spirit in you and me and the corporate church today. And that comes from, the fruit of the Spirit is listed in Galatians chapter 5, it says this, it says, but the fruit of of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and against such things there is no law. And as we've been working through each one of these fruits through this series, I hope that one theme has become quite apparent to you as we've worked through them, and that simply is that the fruit of the Spirit is something that we simply cannot generate in our own strength. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So as we work through it, we recognize that this is the work of the Holy Spirit and not ourselves. When Pastor Michael took us through this passage as he kicked off the series, he reminded us that the role of the Spirit is freedom, freedom from the law, freedom from sin, and freedom to serve each other. He reminded us that the root of the fruit is fellowship. Fellowship with Christ, fellowship with his spirit, and fellowship with each other. And then he told us that the responsibility of the believer, this is our responsibility, the only responsibility that we have is faith. Faith that God is in control, that his son's sacrifice was sufficient for us and that he's working in and through us to bear fruit. And that should be the basis for the decisions we get to make every day. This morning I want to ask, are you prone to adding your own works to the work of the Holy Spirit? When you hear a sermon about love, do you leave the building thinking, man, I've just got to be more like Ray. I've got to love people more. Or when, you, when you, you hear something about patience, do you go straight home and you Google how to be patient in seven days or less? Is this how you respond to sermons about the fruit of the Spirit? My hope is that your response to this message today isn't that you work harder, but that you trust more and put yourselves in a position where the Holy Spirit can bear fruit in your life. Today, we get to address the fruit of kindness in our lives. 
And to be honest, I've become convinced that kindness the way the Holy Spirit wants to see it is something that we simply cannot grasp without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You see, the Holy Spirit works to make us look more like Jesus so that we can continue the work that Jesus, Jesus has already started. This morning, I hope to show you that Jesus showed great kindness and that he calls us to show kindness at great cost so that we can lead others to the greatest kindness. So with that in mind, let's pray. Lord, you know that we are all weak people in desperate need of your spirit to bear fruit in our lives. And as we open your word today and look for examples where you were kind, won't you set a fire in our hearts to do the same? Please show us how desperately we need you to change our hearts so that we can live in the spirit and walk in a way that bears fruit. May your words be preached this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Great kindness at great cost leads us to the greatest kindness. Let's kick off our study this morning in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. If you don't have a Bible here this morning, I'd encourage you to raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring one to you. Uh, You really do want to have the Word of God in your laps this morning. Um, If you do not own a Bible, then just keep the one that they're bringing to you. It would be our privilege this morning to put the Word of God into your asset base. Luke chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. The average life of a Jewish person, when they turned five or six, they would start their education. They would head off down the road and they'd find the local teacher or rabbi and they would start to learn. And for the Jewish people, there was only really one textbook And that was the book called the Torah, or God's Law, and you would understand it to be the first five books of our Bible today, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And at the age of five or six, they started to study this word. They would memorize it. They would go into depth about it. And for six or seven years, this is all they would study. By the age of 12, they became a little bit more active in their studies and they would have question and answer sessions with the teachers and they would get into more depth about what this law said. And at the age of 13, they were considered spiritually adults. And so the average 13-year-old had a very firm grasp on the Torah. In fact, they had memorized most of it. And in the middle of that book, in the middle of the Torah, they came across Leviticus chapter 13. 
and they would have studied this extensively. And Leviticus chapter 13 deals with the topic of leprosy, and it is quite extensive. What do you do when you find leprosy? What tests can you, can you do to make sure it is leprosy? What do you do if you find leprosy in a garment, if it's in somebody's house? What do you do to a person who has leprosy? You see, most Jewish people knew what to do when a leper was in the city. Listen to what the Torah instructs to the person who had leprosy. The man who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and yell out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And earlier in the book of Leviticus chapter 5, it said, if you were simply to touch a person with leprosy, even if inadvertently so, you yourself would become unclean. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be this man? From the day that the priest announced him unclean until this day, he has been isolated from his community. Everything he owned was either burned or taken away. He was removed from his family and his household. Couldn't see them anymore because he was no longer welcome. He was unclean. Add to that fact that he started to experience physical suffering. You see, leprosy is a disease where you have no feeling In your body. And so you wouldn't realize when body parts started falling off. And perhaps as you were sleeping in a gutter one night and a rat came to chew on your toe, you didn't realize what had happened the next morning. All you knew is that you were missing another toe. He was not welcome in society, no one wanted to see him. He was completely isolated. This man was at rock bottom. You see, most Jewish people knew what to do when there was a leper in the city. The best thing you could do is run like mad. See, if he's coming this way, I'm going to go that way. Because if this guy so much as touches me, Well, that's just going to open up a can of worms that I don't really want to deal with today. I don't want to be unclean. What is this guy even doing here? Why is he in my space? Does he not recognize the risk he's exposing us to? Does he not recognize that he's unclean? Why is he here? See, all this man has seen of religious, pious, and clean people are their backs as they fled from him. They were quite simply the untouchables. I wonder if that's your story here today. Perhaps you're here or you're watching online and you haven't really accepted Christ or you're here and checking out what this church thing is all about or you've heard of Christianity and you just want to see what the story is but Truth be told, every time you come to church or see religious, pious people, all you really get to see is their back. 
and they suggest to you, listen, if you want to be part of this, if you want to be in this community, if you want to be part of these people, then you need to stop doing that, or you need to fix this, or you need to start doing this, or, or, or. I want to suggest to you this morning, if that's where you are, I want to offer an unreserved apology for the part I had to play in that. You see, that's simply not how church ought to be. And it's certainly not the way Jesus responded to this man. And if you're looking for Christ, and that's your assertion today, I want to suggest that your search isn't over. That you still need to meet Jesus. And I'd like to encourage you to continue doing so because it's worth it. The leper's question to Jesus reveals that he knew who Jesus was. If you will, you can make me clean. How did he know who Jesus was? He knew who Jesus was because Jesus had healed many people already. Jesus had healed many people already. And he knew that Jesus was both competent to heal him, but more than that, Jesus was kind enough to heal him, so he throws himself at the feet of Jesus and says, please, I'm desperate to be healed. Now Jesus had every excuse to turn this man away. This man was inconvenient. This man ignored social convention. This man had a severe case of leprosy, and even the book of God, the Torah, supported an argument to walk the other direction. But Jesus was not inconvenienced by this man. Whatever plans he had for that day, they could wait. Jesus wasn't too concerned with social conventions of the day. And being the very son of God, his heart was for this man. And Jesus knew that he could make him clean. So he decides to heal him. And the method he chooses is shown in verse 13. It says... And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And touched him. And touched him, saying, I will be clean. See, Jesus didn't need to touch this man. There are documented cases where Jesus healed people, and he's not even in the room. Why did Jesus touch this man? Do you realize from the day the priest pronounced him a leper to this day, not a single clean person has touched him? This was the first time. How must that have felt? <laughs> Listen, every good story starts with Jesus moving towards a sinner. Even when people are fleeing in the other direction, this leper saw the face of Christ moving towards him and he touched him. What a day. You see, Jesus was kind not only because he was willing to help, but he also knew exactly what kind of help would be the most helpful. Let me ask you this morning, when you help someone, does it start with understanding what they need? Jerry Bridges said one of the less obvious but more critical needs 
that many, shall I say most, people have is for someone to listen to them. Do you listen well? Do you take time to understand a person's need before you act? Or do you just rush in in a great hurry and deliver a meal or help someone move or drive a truck or watch a friend's child? Look, it's great that you help. It's admirable that you serve sacrificially. But let me ask you, are you meeting their need? I remember when Mackenzie, that's my oldest child, when she was a couple months old, Um, Lee was in pretty rough shape. She had been through the whole delivery thing. Apparently, that's a big deal. And, uh, you know, a couple months of no sleep. And she was looking looking pretty rough. And as a new new dad and a husband, I really just wanted to support her. I wanted to help her. Um, But I wanted to do something grand. I wanted to build something. I wanted to perhaps um, make a great meal or vacuum the carpets or, I don't know, buy her a pony or build a ship. I just wanted to do something that showed her that I wanted to support her. And I remember coming up to her and asking her how I could help, and she said, hey, could you just hold the baby? Could you just hold the baby? This thing is like a fungus. It's been on me since I got home. I haven't washed properly in three weeks. Just hold the baby, please. And so I held the baby, and I must admit, that's not what I had hoped for. And it's amazing how quickly I became transactional, and I was like, well, is this... Is it like a 10-minute thing, or is this 20 minutes that I have to hold the baby? Because, you know, i got stuff to do. i got plans for my life. But Lee just wanted me to hold the baby so that she could feel useful and that she could have some time to herself. Jesus knew how to provide for the greatest needs of people in a way that was able to show great kindness. See, perhaps they need a truck, but they also need someone to listen to their story. Perhaps they need a meal, but they also need fellowship around the dinner table. Perhaps they need childcare, but they also need family. See, great kindness isn't only about doing, it's also about knowing what people need. And then Jesus tells the leper to go and show himself to the priest and to make the offerings and to do what the, the law commanded someone to do when they were healed from leprosy. And by the way, you find those instructions in Leviticus chapter 14. And it's worth a study if you have the inclination. But long story short, this man gets to go away and clean himself He gets to shave that huge mop of hair off of his head. He gets to clean his clothes and he gets to come back into community. No longer required to yell out unclean. No longer agitating the people around him. Able to see their faces. He is now acceptable. (laughs) What a day. And then Jesus does something quite strange. He says to this man, hey, let's keep this quiet. Just keep this between you and the priest. Don't tell anyone else. Why does Jesus do that? I believe that one of the reasons Jesus does that is because healing this man cost him something. You see, the fame that Jesus had inhibited his ministry. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, as he's trying to leave Capernaum, Jesus is trying to leave, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. 
You see, once they figured out who Jesus was and what he could do and that he would do it, nobody really wanted to see him move on. You know, just stick around in case my dad gets sick or I've got an uncle with a weird toe or I've got something coming up. You see, his fame made his ministry more difficult. In fact, it got so bad that he couldn't even find a place of solitude to pray. He had to leave the city and find desolate places just to pray. You see, Jesus showed great kindness to this man by reaching out exactly how he needed him to, and it cost him. You see, great kindness at great cost leads us to the greatest kindness. So now that we've seen what great kindness looks like, the next question for us is how or when should we implement it Menikoff said in his book, kindness is to the Christian what salt is to the ocean. It ought to be everywhere in the believer's life, flavoring all that he does. I didn't like that quote. To me, that felt a little steep. See, I wanted, I wanted kindness to be something more measurable, maybe one or two a day, and that'll cover me. Maybe I could get them done in the morning and then I'd have the rest of the day to do what I wanted to do. That's what I was hoping kindness would be. Or maybe, you know, if you did something really big and kind, you would be covered for a whole month and then you could sort of relax for the rest of it. But everywhere, flavoring everything that you do, well, that's not comfortable at all. Jesus instructs us on how and when we should be kind In Luke chapter 6, you can flip forward there. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 35. And interestingly enough, this is the first time the word kind is used in the gospel of Luke. This is what it says. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your, your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. The first thing to point out about this scripture is that this is a list of commands. It's not advice. These aren't optional requirements for us. This is expected. So let's have a look at what he's trying to say. I want you to picture someone that hates you. 
That might be easy for you this morning. Or perhaps try and picture someone that you hate. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Um, and listen, this, this should be relatively straightforward for us today. There's lots of ways that we've discovered how to hate people. Perhaps you have a toxic boss or an uncaring spouse. Maybe a lousy neighbor or a friend that you've recently lost. Or perhaps they hate you because of who you are. Maybe it's because you're a Christian or a conservative, or you voted for the NDP, or you're an immigrant, you're local, you're rich, or you're poor, perhaps you're a drummer. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's doctrine-based. You're post-trib, or pre-trib, or mid-trib, or up-trib, or down-trib, I forget all the tribs. Young earth, old earth, or maybe you're a Calvinist, or worse, you could be wrong. There are many reasons available for us to hate people today. So when I ask you to think of someone who you hate or someone who hates you, who pops into your mind? I'd like to suggest to you this morning that there are three ways that we can respond to someone who persecutes us, someone who hates us. The first way that we can respond to this is what I call a fear-based response. And, and, and this is just, hey, whoever that person is, look, they're, they're damaging to me, so I'm just going to walk away. I'm just going to isolate myself from this person, and I'm going to remove myself from a position where they can do anything further to hurt me. And if you, if you want, you could actually do any number of Google searches and convince yourself that this person is psychologically damaged. Maybe they're a racist or a sexist or an anarchist or a sadist or a narcissist, any kind of ist, right? We can convince ourselves that this person is psychologically unstable. So the best thing to do is to remove myself from their influence. See, the fear-based response says this person has seriously damaged my present and they can seriously damage my future. So I need to do everything I can to reduce any further suffering that they can apply to me. Another response might be a fight-based response. You know, this might suggest that, hey, you need to hurt that person before they have the opportunity to hurt you. Now, I was thinking about this, and this isn't really me, I thought, but I found that my fight-based response comes out a lot quicker when I recognize persecution of people that I like by other people that I don't like. And this is where we think, hey, I've got to step in here because what that person is doing to this person is just not okay. I need to get involved. I'm going to take this guy out. Because what they need is justice and I'm uniquely placed to provide it. You see, a fight-based response says that even if it means I need to tear this person apart, justice demands that I act to make sure that suffering ends. After all, they're the problem. And I'd much rather that they suffer than me. You see, they deserve it. I don't. Jesus says something entirely different. You need to love anyone that hates or persecutes you. Can you do that? today 
Are you in a position where you can put aside your justifiable arguments to go on the attack and to defend and to ignore simply to allow yourself pain so that you can be kind instead? Here is the responsibility of the Christian who wants to see the fruit of the Holy Spirit developed in their life. A response of faith is required when people persecute you. And how can we cultivate a response of faith? Listen, the more time we spend filling ourselves up in faith, the more likely we we will be able to choose a response of faith which allows us to be kind. Listen to the summary that Jesus' instructions give. If he strikes you on the cheek, give him your other one as well. If he takes your cloak, what's a cloak? Well, a cloak in the day was your outer garment that made you look good, It was warm, but it doubled. It had two purposes. Your cloak also served as a blanket at night. So if you really weren't that wealthy and you had to sleep outside, at least you had your cloak to keep you warm. Listen, if somebody's coming to take your cloak, you really don't have much left after that. And Jesus said, if they take your cloak, let them take your tunic as well. Well, what was a tunic? Well, that was the garment that you wore against your skin if you lost your tunic. You really had nothing left. If he begs, give. And if they take your stuff, don't don't demand it back. In short, love your enemies. Pray for those who abuse you. Do good. Lend. And expect nothing in return. I must confess, when I first read the scripture, it sort of made sense to me. It it was kind of neat. I understood it. It lined up quite well. But the more I started to consider the stories of suffering that I've seen, the less easy it became to accept. You see, I've, I've seen people lose mega fortunes in an instant. I've sat across the table from rape survivors I know people who have been abused. I've met down and outers. I see the untouchables every day. How is it possible? How is it possible to apply this requirement to sufferings that are so great and to evil that is so large? (laughs) Listen, this morning, what I'm about to say comes from scripture and I believe it's the truth. It's coming out of my mouth but if I'm honest it's not yet in my heart. I find this very difficult to preach. But here's the truth. So far as I can see there is no room in the scripture to support an argument whereby greater suffering relieves you of the command to love your persecutor. I believe that God calls us all to suffer and hurt a whole lot more than we think is reasonable today. The only scriptural recourse, listen, the only scriptural recourse available to the believer who is being persecuted is love. We are to be kind to our enemies. It goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. This goes for everyone. 
You know, Jesus is using enemies as an extreme case here, but this is how we are to treat anyone, friends, family, fellowship, even our enemies. You see, when we let go an attack, when we absolve a debt, or respond in a manner that is unexpected and full of grace instead of justice, we show kindness. But I will say this. Our lives as Christians aren't meant to be lived in isolation. You have the enormous benefit of the church around you who is supposed to help you as you suffer. We're supposed to share your burdens and we're supposed to walk with you through the valleys of life. If your situation is so dire and so extreme and your suffering is so steep, you need help. Don't do it on your own. Come and speak to someone today and start walking through these sufferings with others who love you, who care for you, and want to see God glorified in you and your story. And pray. And let us pray with you that the Holy Spirit gives you the strength to respond with faith in the way that he's calling you to do today. Listen, you are quite correct. It's not fair. You have my full agreement on that point this morning, but we show kindness to our enemies because that's what Jesus did. Verse 35 says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Those people that you've chosen to hate, Do you hate them enough to condemn them to hell this morning? Do you realize that the suffering that you're experiencing today may have nothing to do with you and everything to do with your persecutor? With the person who needs Jesus more than you or they understand? If you sat down and thought about it, which reward would you choose? Would you rather win the argument that's in front of you? Or would you rather win the person to Christ? We will be called the sons of the Most High. And if we're the sons of the Most High, we need to look like the Most High himself. We are kind to our enemies because Jesus was kind to us. You see great kindness at great cost leads us to the greatest kindness. On the night that Jesus was arrested, we find him in the garden of Gethsemane and he is stressed as he prays. And he's considering the events that are about to unfold. He's about to be betrayed by one of his closest friends. And then he's about to be accused and convicted of sins that he simply didn't commit. And then he's lashed 39 times. He's beaten by 420 professional soldiers and forced to carry a cross up a hill, which he simply couldn't do. And when they finally got him up there, they lay him down on that cross and they drove nails through his hands and feet and they lifted the cross 
and crucified him. But I want to tell you this morning that the physical pain and torture that he experienced didn't hold a candle against the spiritual suffering that he was about to endure. Jesus started to sweat beads of blood when he considered the wrath that he had taken upon himself from God. You see, in agreeing to become our sacrifice for our sin, he took on the full weight of God's wrath. And Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. He said, in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had then a view of that furnace of wrath into which he was cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. There are two things that render Christ's love so wonderful. One, that he should be willing to endure suffering that was so great. And two, that he should be willing to endure them to make atonement for wickedness that was so great. But in order to its being properly said, Christ of his own act and choice endured sufferings that were so great, it was necessary that he should have an extraordinary sense of how great these sufferings were to be before he endured them. This was given in his agony. Do you get it? Can you see it now? Do you finally understand Jesus knew every aspect of the suffering he was about to face. He saw every angle of it. And when the decision point came, Jesus decided, you're worth it. And after he was whipped, beaten, and crucified, and while his enemies stood back and mocked him and watched him die, two robbers alongside him start up a conversation. And we witness this in Luke Chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man had done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. How did they know? How did these robbers know who Jesus was? Why did they ask for his help? Because Jesus consistently demonstrated kindness throughout his ministry. They knew he was both competent to save them and he was kind to save them. And when he turned to that second man, what a moment. <laughs> it's almost as if Jesus is he's on the cross and he's like, hey, I've just got this thing to do. I'm just going to go over here and, and, and you know, defeat death and take care of the sin problem that you've had. Victory's just around the corner. I'm about to go crush the head of Satan. And listen, when I get back, the gates of heaven, they're wide open. They're wide open to you today. Welcome to heaven, you sinner. Welcome to paradise, you ungrateful and evil man. It's the greatest kindness 
in the world. And it's the greatest kindness that we get to show to anyone else who needs it. You see, Jesus was kind so that he could lead us to the point where we, like the leper, cried out to him, desperate to be clean, desperate to be healed from our sin. Romans 2 verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is why we need the fruit of kindness manifest in our lives today. Because when we use every opportunity to show great kindness, even at great cost, we have the privilege of leading those who desperately need Jesus to the greatest kindness. We are called to be a people of faith. And our response to this message today is to understand that of our own accord, we simply cannot be the men and women that Jesus needs us to be. But through the work of the Holy Spirit revealed to us by his, work, by his word, we can bear fruit that equips us to do the good work which he has planned for us to do. So church, let's get on that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the immense sacrifice that you paid so that we can come into heaven that we can be called sons of the most high that you've blessed us with immense rewards and father we pray that you would help us to have that eternal perspective in mind as we live out our lives here and father we just pray that you would help us to carry the burdens that we carry and the persecution that we face and the sufferings we experience, Father, won't you give us the strength that we need to do that in a way that glorifies you, in a way that advances your kingdom. Lord, we pray for your assistance and your help. We pray that you would change our hearts so that we can be kind in every opportunity that we have. Lord, we thank you. We ask that you administer to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.